if this goes away and we can travel again freely without this um, specter of disease and, um, you know, crazed militia going berserk on the streets, then then I would assume in the late spring or maybe the early summer, I'll be in New York doing readings. And I mean, that's the plan. This book has already had a pretty long life in some ways. It's the first official release. But funny enough, the, the, the actual first edition, what I'm calling the first edition, was never publicly promoted or published. Um, I had had them created and manufactured for my Kickstarter um, patrons. And so I only, I think I only did about 150 to 200 of them and they were sent out to friends, family and patrons. And that was it. They, they were never really commercially sold. So um, that, and I think that was back in 2013. So it's been all this time later, you know, did you just assume that there wouldn't be much interest outside of that close group of friends? It's not that I didn't think there'd be much interest. I'm just, I'm, I'm not very good at going out and hustling and promoting myself. You know, it's, it's, it's not the easiest thing for me. I'm a little bit more of an introvert that way. Um, I'm getting used to the idea of having to go out on socials and, you know, wave the flag and everything, but um, I didn't really chase after any publishers and I've been working on so many projects through the years that I just tucked it away in, in the drawer with a few other things. And, and then when Smogvale came out with the incredible box set, the Peter Lochner box set, they had gotten in touch with me to, to ask about permission to use a couple of the tracks that I had written with Peter. And then when I saw what they actually did, I was just so thrilled that they did such a beautiful tribute to him and did like due diligence, uh, found all those recordings, remastered them, um, it's a shame that Peter never got into a studio, proper studio to record, but it, they really paid tribute to him. So it cast another light on who he was. One of the reasons I wrote the book was because I knew him so well. And he had taken on this kind of ghoulish mythology of the, you know, the, the drunkard and the crazy maniac who shot guns and went berserk. Uh, and what I was seeing online was, it really was downright ghoulish, you know, the live fast, die young image that people had of him. And uh, I had to kind of put it, put a, a stop to that really, if I could, if I was able to in the story. And uh, yeah, the box set, um, I started talking to Frank Mouseri, who has but he's the owner of Smogvale, and we decided to um, put the book out on his label as a, uh, you know, as a companion piece to the recordings. He did quite literally live fast and die young. True, but but he 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 lived fast and died young. Yes, but when you think of people that died that young, usually they were a lot more extreme than he was in terms of, um, I mean, he was actually a really kind and generous and gentle guy, which is kind of the antithesis of the, the rock and roll, you know, maniac of live fast, die young ethos. So uh, yeah, he, he had another side that needed to be uh, presented. I think. He's actually a big or possibly the big reason why you're a musician at all. Yeah, yeah. He uh, discovered me singing in a little bar in Cleveland Heights um, with a with a cover band. And I had heard about his reputation and what a brilliant musician he was and, you know, that he was a bad boy. But when he actually approached me that night, when he saw me singing, he was just the sweetest, gentle guy, you know. So it was I was kind of shocked. It, it, at, at the uh, image that he presented to me. And then we started hanging out and doing music together. I ended up being his roommate and he became a very dear friend of mine. That image of him isn't necessarily something, perhaps it, perhaps it grew after he died, but it was something that was certainly around during his lifetime. What happened was Peter, well, this is just my opinion. And everybody who knew this guy is going to have a different opinion of who he was, of course, right? But um, the Cleveland scene was very insular, small scene, mostly guys, a few women. And, and of the women musicians that did play in that scene, um, Peter was very supportive of them. 
Um, most of the guys were real macho that way. They were misogynists in terms of, you know, women shouldn't play music. There were, I'm not saying that of all the guys that were in the scene, but um, he, he, uh, he got bored very easily. And punk was huge. And this avant-garde notion of punk that he was involved with, like bands with Rocket from the Tombs and Per Ubu, um, he started those bands, you know, with, with uh, very uh, important people, not to diminish their importance, but um, he was a catalyst for a lot of that scene and, and creating those bands. But um, essentially he was a singer songwriter more in the tradition of Dylan and um, Tom Waits and people like that, you know, and he he was a lead guy. He was a solo artist, yet he, he was always uh, playing uh, second fiddle to lead singers that he would support and push forward, like David Thomas from Perubu, you know. Um, and so he would walk away. He, he would kind of sabotage himself and walk away and start something new and get bored with that and off he'd go again. And, um, and his, he, he was myth, mythologizing himself by you know, getting drunk at a rehearsal and pulling out a gun and, you know, he wouldn't air shoot anyone, but it was uh, a mythology, a personal mythology that he was creating around himself. You get the sense that he was very actively cultivating this notion of him. He was, yes, but it was antithetical to who he really was, which is what was so fascinating about him to me, uh, you know, as a friend of his. Because, you know, when I was living with him, we, we, were, we were mostly listening to people like Richard and Linda Thomas and Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell and uh, Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie. And so, so yeah, it, yeah, it was a creation. I mean, we all have our creation myths and sometimes they're ext- extreme in his case. The popular music of the time and, and the music that he's playing with it in his bands and that you're playing with his, you know, his punk and his avant-garde and his noise. Is there, is there this kind of sense that, uh, that, you know, like Fairport convention or something, or are these things that you have to kind of, I guess, keep, keep your own secret? Yes, most definitely. (laughs) Yeah. That, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, his gentle side was something that wasn't supported by the scene, but at the same time, the guy could write, a punk song like nobody's business, you know, like ain't it fun is just, it's the most nihilistic punk song you'll ever hear. Um, Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, soul music was not looked at as cool. Folk music was not looked at as cool. It was a very much about angst and rage and this kind of dystopian post-industrial uh, emptiness, you know, like making noise out of out of the void um, that was going on. Yeah, yeah it, I mean, it definitely seems like an artifact of of Cleveland. Yeah, at, certainly at you know at the time, perhaps even that's the case today. If the overbearing shadow of the Rust Belt, a lot of these kind of abandoned warehouses, things like that, is that is that a part of the reason why that was such an important part of the aesthetic at the time? I, I think Cleveland, uh, cities like Cleveland, Detroit, Pittsburgh, the, the Rust Belt cities that kind of, you know, just died a, a, a tragic death. There's a very haunted feeling about those cities and the decay. Um, and I, I do think it, fe- it fed into the, uh, you know, the zeitgeist of what was going on then. I mean, the same thing was kind of happening in Manchester, England, you know, with... Um, Factory records. Yeah, factory records, level terrace apart, you know, the angst of those bands um, was kind of a mirror of what was going on in Cleveland at the time. Um, So, yeah, it it really fed that, like, you know, that that idea that what is a a young man's purpose? I mean, there's always been teenage rebellion in rock and roll. But um, this was kind of compounded by the fact that there was this emptiness and what is, what, what we're kind of grappling with it today in a big way, this kind of toxic masculinity that doesn't, there's no purpose. People don't know what to build. And so instead of being able to create it, it, there's this, you know, this uh, diversion to destroy and and be violent and and work towards that instead, Uh, hate the other and, 
Um, and it's that purposelessness that um, was always, was a great indicator of great rock and roll music, you know, for women and men. I mean, there, there were a lot of women that kind of got glossed over in the history of rock and roll. Do you feel like that that was part of why women were being looked over at the time was that we tend to think of that kind of, well, I mean, you know, like the, there's the phrase angry young man, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very gendered phrase. I mean, is that, right. do, do you think that that's why it was such kind of an overwhelmingly male scene at the time? Uh, yeah, I think it, it, it was in Cleveland. And then as soon as I got to New York in 1977, the angry young women were running up, <laughs> you know, and they were coming from all over the world um, to do music, art, film. It was just so incredible. The gendered sexism that we grew up with in the 50s, 60s, 70s uh, was very entrenched in, in the Cleveland scene. Stop, my dog keeps crying. But it, it was so different in New York. And that's why he wanted to move to New York. I mean, he loved women musicians. He loved Tina Weymouth. He was very inspired by Patti Smith and, you know, the fact that she just exploded all stereotypes about what rock and roll could and should be, um, which, which was uh, really interesting to him because he, he, he was able to embrace his gentle side. Yeah. So, yeah. Did you instantly feel a, a, a kinship with, with the music? Did it, did the punk scene feel like a natural fit for you? Well, what felt like a natural fit to me was the no wave scene, which was a came after punk. And it was, excuse me, it was more of a, I feel like a lot of punk was pop with rougher edges. You know, if you think about the Ramones or the Heartbreakers or even the New York Dolls, it, it was unpolished, rough pop that wasn't afraid to say certain things, right? A lot of it was like repurposed 50s rock and roll too. Exactly. Yes. The same, the same traditional like chord progressions, um, just dirtier and angrier, you know. No Wave was something else altogether. It was kind of like breaking apart a lot of different types of genres of music, like genre fluid. That, two things that were going on in, in New York at that, in 77, 78, genre fluidity and gender fluidity. <laughs> Um, and no wave, you know, like for instance, James, when I, when I uh, joined the contortions, James Chance, um, James was, you know, he grew up on Albert Eiler and, and James Brown and funk. And, and so we were taking these kind of like uh, very funky rhythms and chopping them up and repurposing them in this crazy way where we'd be playing polyrhythms against each other. And it was very, very noisy but at the same time, it had a system, you know, uh, it had a, it had a musical cohesiveness uh, via the rhythms that we were playing. And, and it was also theater. I mean, you know, we, when we did a show, James would start pummeling someone in the front of the stage and the original bass player, George Scott and I would, would leap from the stage into the melee in front of the stage and there'd be fisticuffs going on while the rest of the band was playing frenetically so it was kind of like this Antonin Artaud's theater of cruelty. You know, we, we, we were just exploding all over the place. Um, and it was really exciting for people. I mean, not that I condone violence and nobody got terribly hurt. I think, uh, I, you know, well, there was, there was blood on occasion. <laughs> I met you the one time and we're talking now and you, you don't seem like a particularly violent person to me. You're also not a, a large person. <laughs> That's true. You felt kind of compelled to do that. I mean, you were you enjoyed being a part of that, uh, having actual physical altercations. Well, here's here's the thing: when men in rock and roll throw TV sets out of hotel windows or smash up a place, or they're always thought of as like, oh, sexy bad boys, you know. Women have never really been allowed to be angry as artists. We've had to absorb so much bullshit throughout history, but we're not allowed to be angry. So what happened with No Wave is that all the women that decided, oh, we're going to be angry and we don't care anymore. We were able to express ourselves that way through the music, through the films, through the, through the art that we were making. And it was really, really exciting. In terms of the physicality of it, even that 
um, at that time in, in my life was okay. You know, I mean, I would never hit somebody if I wasn't provoked. So if James was getting pummeled, he was like my brother. So I had to jump into the fray and help defend him, right? If a man tried to hit on me and did it in a really offensive way, sometimes I would just have to, you know, cold cock him. <laughs> I mean, it was actually very freeing at the time to be able to do that. And I had, you know, personally had to absorb a lot of male violence in my own body. And so part of my expression of violence was a getting back, uh, a hitting back at, at, at not being, not having to be a victim, you know? So it sounds like that's something that developed fairly organically for the band at the time. It did. Yeah, it did. It was very organic. I mean, it wasn't thought of, and even feminism, like we women, we, we never thought about feminism in the academic way or the cultural way of the way it was happening at the time. We just existed outside of gender norms, you know, as our own creations, as yes, we were women, but we were also very androgynous and um, the sexuality was very fluid. And that went for the men and the women of the time. So there weren't all of these straight jackets, you know, you're, you know, uh, I think identity politics, people are very, very eager to, to wrap themselves up, themselves up in a brand or, a, uh, you know, I don't understand that. I wish that that weren't the case. Sometimes I think that that's a big problem for us as a society, that we're all sequestered from each other by our brands and identities, you know. Was gender fluidity for you, was taking on kind of a more, I guess, what we would consider to be a traditionally masculine persona, was that your way of fitting in with an overwhelmingly male scene? It's funny because some sometimes I felt like a, you know, a, a boy in 1930s France in Paris, and sometimes I dressed like Edith Piaf, and sometimes, you know, I would doll myself up very feminine or um, could be very masculine in flea-bitten suits and Buster Keaton pork pie hats, you know. It, it was less about a gendered thing. Um, it's hard to explain. It's, it was more playful, I think. It was more playful and more like I can be and look and do whatever, you know, in terms of that gender fluidity. And so, so that, you know, that was happening in 1977 and it wasn't just me. There were a lot of women that were uh, expressing in the same ways at, in that scene at the time. Do you feel that you were able to express yourself the way you wanted to, both in terms of, you know, the way you looked and how you carried yourself, but also music in Cleveland in the same way? Or did it take the move to New York to really fully embrace all of these things? It took the move to New York. It took the move to New York because of the scene being so dominated by guys. I tell a little story in the book um, about an encounter I had with David Thomas, um, the singer in Perubu. And uh, he was always very, I, I think I refer to him as a glowering cloud of grump because he was, <laughs> he, he never looked happy. He was always grimacing. And uh, I had, I was uh, with my friend T who was one of the guitar players in, in Perubu and he was Crocus Behemoth at the time, David Thomas. And he said to me, so what do you do? And I said, uh, well, I'm a singer. He goes, well, if you're singing rock and roll, you better stop now. There's, you know, rock and roll is, is, isn't for women. It's for guys. And uh, uh, I just walked out. I didn't even, I didn't want to get into it with him, you know? Um, but but that was kind of the attitude that prevailed. There were a few guys that were lovely, but it was still like, you know, women are best to be um, the uh, appendages of men. <laughs> you said earlier that Peter heard you singing, and that's when he decided to, to encourage you. How serious were you about music at the time when he approached you? You know, I grew up rough. My parents uh, divorced when I was very young and my mother was schizophrenic and my father uh, did not support us, the three kids, um, my brothers and I. So I grew up in foster homes and reformatories and 
throughout all of those years from about age 11 on, um, I had always loved music from the very beginning because my grandmother was a, was a honky tonk piano player. Um, she played in speakeasies during the depression played by ear and she was amazing. So my love of music was born with her and my mother was a, a dancer, uh, in musical theater in Cleveland. Um, so I grew up with music and, uh, it became kind of like a life raft for me. It was something no one else could take away from me, whereas I had lost everything else. Um, and so by the time I got to Blossom Hill, which was a girls reformatory in Cleveland that was predominantly black girls from the city. Um, and I always loved soul music. Uh, I really found my voice there. Uh, and was singing gospel a lot and soul music uh, for several years while I was at that school. And um, so I, I was very uh, shy about uh, trying to pursue music because I didn't look like, you know, the, the singers that were in the top 40 at the time. Women, you know, I was, I was like a little boy at the time and uh, the women that were singing that were popular singers were, feminine and, um, you know, gorgeous. And uh, I didn't think I would be able to pursue it professionally, but I, but I loved it and I had to do it. So um, got up my nerve to start singing at, you know, little local uh, uh, places uh, where they would let singers get up. And actually that was the first time I ever did it uh, was when I met Peter. First time I sang in public. Yeah. At what point was it clear that that it was something that you could do, you know, that, that it was something that would really be a major part of your artistic expression. Um, it had everything to do with him and our friendship. You know, he really supported me. He, he told me I had a great voice and encouraged me to sing, encouraged me to play guitar. And um, our plan was always to move to New York together and start a band in New York city. Um, but as his alcoholism became more severe and, um, you know, and I, and I was joining him on that journey because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be his partner in crime. <laughs> the journey, you mean drinking? Of drinking, you know, uh, and drugs. And, you know, he taught me how to shoot a gun and, um, you know, it's all in the book. Uh, but um, uh, the excess became became uh, very dark and it started to spiral out of control and I had to remove myself. I had to move out. Um, and and I was, I was really devastated because I didn't, I was too young and I didn't know how to, I knew how to save myself by getting out of the situation, but I did not know how to help him. And he ended up moving back in with his parents. And um, I actually went to New York by myself for a weekend. Um, uh, and he died when I was in New York at the Chelsea, staying at the Chelsea Hotel. I found out at CBGB's from his friend Lester Bangs. So, you know, that was my first experience of someone I really cared about having died. And he meant so much to me as a mentor and as a friend. And so short, I went back to New York and shortly after his death, I think it was less than a month, I packed my, my knapsack and was off to New York City and never looked back, you know. Obviously, a, a major change of plans, you know, that, that you were going to, to move out here with him and I suspect that when it comes to putting your roots down and starting a project in an entirely new environment it's probably useful to have that a kind of partner in crime um mm -hmm. what, what were your first steps like how did you establish yourself as a musician in the city when you moved out here well you know I met Lydia Lunch and Bradley Fields was her drummer at the time and Bradley was a uh, ex-alumni of the Plaza, which was the Cle which was Cleveland's equivalent of the Chelsea Hotel. Um, so I knew Bradley from Cleveland and um, got in touch with him when I, when I got to New York and uh, ended up hanging out with him and Lydia quite a bit. And uh, 
watching James Chance rehearse with uh, Pat Place and James Nairs. Um, Pat Place still plays with James on occasion. And James Nairs is now Jamie Nairs, who is an incredible visual artist. But um, at the time they were, you know, uh, James, James was playing the, the saxophone, the alto sax. Pat was playing the guitar. James Nairs was playing the guitar. And it just sounded like I didn't know what I was listening to. It kind of sounded like five versions of my mother in a schizophrenic freak out. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I, there, was, there was a drum set there. So I sat down and started playing the drums. And of course, I don't know how to play the drums. But my sense of rhythm is pretty good. So um, they were impressed by that. James Chance was impressed by that and uh, asked me to join the band, but to play keyboards instead of drums. And to play them percussively, to play keyboards percussively as if, you know, I was playing like a conga drum or bongos. And that, that morphed into playing clusters like Sun Ra or uh, um, not quite like Cecil Taylor, but almost. Um, yeah. That sort of free jazz kind of inspired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Free jazz with a very, a very punk ethos of no one actually it's it's not breaking free from the traditional jazz it's it's actually not really knowing not not having mastered your instrument in this right exactly exactly picking up the instruments like james nares never played an instrument pat place never played guitar um so it was it was phenomenal we were the thing that held the music together were the polyrhythms you know like playing off of each other in the spaces where one instrument wasn't playing You'd hit a cluster and James would solo over it. And that's kind of how it evolved. I mean, he had very strict ideas about how he wanted the rhythms to go. Um, And it just evolved from that. We ended up getting a couple of very good musicians involved in the band. Um, Jody Harris, the guitarist, Don Christensen, the drummer, and George Scott, who passed away from a heroin overdose um, like I think a year into the band, but um, they were, they were the three great musicians and Pat and I uh, were like the novices and um, the contortions were born. That was kind of like the main group of the contortions. You said at the beginning that, you know, you haven't really, that you, that you're not great at self-promotion, that you're not really good at, I guess, kind of the hustle when it comes to that. Right. um, Promoting the book, but it sounds like, at very least you did a very good job of kind of ingratiating yourself into, into scenes. I mean, it sounds like you weren't even out here that long before you crossed paths with Lydia Lunch and were suddenly in this band. Well, yeah, you know, it, a lot of it had to do with visuals too. I mean, one of the reasons James (laughs) and Lydia called me Lil Pimpin because I would wear like an apple cap and, you know, like boys duds from the fifties. And I got, I got to say, if you ever become a SoundCloud rapper, that that's a fantastic name. <laughs> Lil Pimpin. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But um, one of the, one of the reasons why James chose Pat Place was because of the way she looked. She was astoundingly unique. I mean, she had this bleached blonde hair that was just chunks you know cut out of it like it looked like a you know a a mental institution haircut um and she was very slim and her body was very androgynous and you couldn't i could not tell when i first met pat or saw her playing guitar whether she was a boy or a girl and that was wonderful you know and the same could have been said of me at the time um and one of the reasons James wanted me, he said, I really like your look. So a lot of, you know, a lot of this had to do with how people appeared and how they carried themselves and how much imagination they used in, um, we used in our presentation. You described Peter as being, I guess, prone to self-sabotage. You know, do do you, did you experience that at all in, in, in your career? Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) How did that manifest yeah. itself? Well, you know, I didn't, I didn't uh, find sobriety until I was in my mid thirties. So uh, a lot, uh, a lot of people were attracted to my singing voice, and I, I was able to score record deals early on. 
my first record deal was with Geffen Records, newly formed Geffen Records. Unfortunately, the guy that signed me separated me from the woman I was writing music with, uh, Brenda Alderman, who was a mm. uh, black bass player and gay. And she was in the band that I had started, the all-girl band called The Bloods. And my A&R man, um, he loved the demos that we wrote together and recorded together, but he wanted to separate me from her. It was it an image thing? Did she just not fit? I think it, I think for him it was an image thing. Yeah, uh, he did not want me to carry on this image of you know like interracial, you know street lesbians. It was not. <laughs> they were not having it. Interracial street street lesbians were not hot at the time. <laughs> I guess not. Not commercially. Not in the corporate music business, but um, and then I also had a wonderful manager that I adored named Jane Friedman, who used to be Patty Smith's manager, and they told me um, I had to separate from her as well. So basically, what they did was they signed me for for authentically what they heard in my voice and and my songwriting, and then proceeded to take all of my support systems away from me, which left me adrift and. Um, you know, I didn't really have any support systems and had all these guys in the corporate music business trying to tell me what to do. And it was just, it became a mess. And I was still drinking at the time. So this didn't bode well for uh, the uh, one of the producers that they hooked me up with. I'm writing about this now. This is the next book. So yeah, I, d- I did contribute to s- sabotaging my own c- career, but a lot of it also was the, you know, the corporate music business and their, their treatment um, of someone who did not fit the mold. Were they actively trying to turn you into a pop star? Yes, they were. They were. And which, which they could have probably have done if they had have let me, allowed me my people, you know, my music, my manager. Um, who were all quite capable, but it was, you know, it was a woman manager. It was a black gay woman musician, you know, it was not to their liking. So they ended up eventually sticking me in a little, uh, in a little uh, house in the South of England with a producer I had nothing in in common with and a fair light. And I was told to make a record and it turned out to be a disaster. So the music was bad or well it's i I don't want to give the story away (laughs) but it's a good one i promise you (laughs) it sounds like collaboration is a pretty big through line uh, through line through a lot of a lot of what you've done i mean it's really it's interesting obviously this book it sounds like this book that you're working on now is really your story you know the the book about peter is is kind of a memoir but it's a really it's a memoir told through somebody else right yeah were you actively trying to tell your own story at the time and then kind of just naturally went towards his or how did that work out well before i wrote uh peter and the wolves i i have a memoir that i wrote about my my childhood called twist and it's um it's kind of a veiled memoir. It's more like a, a Bildungsroman, you know, like a coming of age story about my my adventures as a uh, as a little orphan. <laughs> Twist being a, a Dickensian Twist. reference. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and after I finished Twist, uh, uh, I I thought of the I thought of I've always conceived as this as being three books like a trilogy with the Peter and the Wolves book being the bridge between my childhood and, and my, my career as an artist or my life as an artist, because the career, you know, career and passion are two different things sometimes I think, you know? So, so yeah, I'm working on no New York, which is the third book in the trilogy. And I've got the other books sitting and waiting. I have quite a few things sitting in the drawer waiting patiently <laughs> it sounds like to some degree you've always been someone who has not only a lot of projects going on but are, are working in a lot of mediums obviously you've been in a number of films you know you've got these books you've done a, a fair bit of writing um music has been 
another through line. Is that by design? Are you somebody who enjoys doing a a wide variety of of different projects? I do. I do. You know, um, funny enough, Elizabeth Gilbert, I heard a talk that she did once. And she was talking about, you know, this idea uh, or theory that, you know, you have to find your passion. You have to find your, it's got to be this one kind of, you know, horse with blinders direction that you need to. Single-minded. Yes, exactly. And she said, but not all people are that. Some people are more like hummingbirds, you know, whereas you, you know, you land on one project and you take from that and you pollinate another project and and you know you it all becomes this kind of beautiful um cross-pollinization um like my work in in, as a director has fed my work in music and and vice versa and language is is music to me language is beautiful i've really fallen in love with the written word in the past like probably six seven years and i love writing it's a very solitary uh thing but I just see all these things feeding each other and, and um, perhaps, you know, what, what's that adage they say, you know, like uh, if you wear too many hats, you'll never succeed at any one thing. I can't remember what the adage is. Do you remember? Oh, Jack of all trades, master of none. That's it. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, of course money is important to me and, and success is important in that, to make enough money to be able to make your, you know, create the the projects you dream about is very important. But at the same time, I've never been able to just chart one specific course and um, be happy. And happiness is like, it's all about happiness. You know, if you're miserable doing what you do in your life, um, you got to find your, your, you know, that, that creative instinct, you know, that you have to, and I, th- I think I've been through a little too much, you know, as a child and as a young adult to, to, um, to not uh, seize on happiness. It's very important to me. To some degree, getting back to the idea of not necessarily self-sabotage, but do, do you think that perhaps you, you did yourself kind of a disservice by not focusing more single-mindedly on one project? Hmm, possibly. I mean, you know, I do have... Uh, not regret so much about not pursuing music single-mindedly. The one regret I do have about not pursuing music is never having learned theory and learned how to play one instrument extremely well. And funny enough, you know, I'm doing that now. I'm learning how to play keyboards, you know, uh, you know, in terms of theory after all these years, but because um, there's still a lot of music in me. And, and I know when I come back to New York, I'd love to even jam with, with people, like free jazz people, and and still sing and, and you know, be involved in musical projects. But um, I, I think that if I had have become famous on a major label like Geffen or Chrysalis, when I was still actively drinking, I probably would have ended up like Amy Winehouse. Because there's something about that business where as you kind of ascend in that business, the pariahs just come at you. And unless you have an incredibly strong support system to take care of you um, uh, and to protect you from, you know, people with with, uh, manipulative intentions that aren't really right for you, you're just going to become a mess. And that's kind of what happened to Amy. You know, what a brilliant voice, but her own father didn't really support her. You know, he wouldn't let her get sober, which is just insane. Um, he was he was in it for himself. And there's a lot of other people. I mean, you take a look at Whitney Houston, you know. Um, when people cannot be themselves, when it's all about the people around them manipulating them for money, or fame for themselves, um, it, it can end up in tragedy. Were you at a point where drinking was really a, a, a coping mechanism for you? For a long time, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then after I got sober, um, something else happened, you know, that had to do with a Me Too moment um, when I was at Chrysalis Records, which I prefer not to speak about right now. I'll speak about it in the book. But, you know, that's another thing that... that 
so much sexism in the in the corporate in, industry and a lot of sexual harassment goes on a lot and and it hasn't had its moment like it has in film in movies and but i think that's coming but after that that was a big heartbreak for me and then and that's kind of when i decided to technically leave the music business mm. and um well i i did some singing after that i went on tour with tears for fears and sophie b hawkins and um sang you know i've sang background vocals with culture club and thomas dolby and i love the music business except all of these huge tours with the biggest artists of the era no but i mean and i you know i loved uh just singing with with people that was a joy as well but uh, after the heartbreak of that one uh episode with chrysalis i decided i wanted to 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 learn how to write and learn how to write really well. So I came out to LA and started pursuing that. What, what does that mean, learn, learn how to write? Well, you know, writers aren't born. It's a craft, just like music. And so um, basically I ensconced myself in reading books and, and practicing writing and writing stories. And I studied with Gordon Lish, who is known as the madman of literature um he he has these workshops that are just like he's so incorrigible um but also so brilliant um he was raymond carver's editor and loves to take credit for the carver story itself as his editor but um i actually learned a lot from him because he would often talk about how in terms of creativity it's very important to to be so idiosyncratic with your voice um, to the point almost of schizophrenia. Again, there's the madness. Um, and, and that's kind of what's, what's going to pull people in because they're going to, they're going to see something they haven't seen before that somehow is some kind of a crack or left turn that pulls them in. And um and and one of my favorite uh, people that talks about writing and and art in ge- in general um, and the meaning of it uh, when it really strikes you is Federico Garcia Lorca talked about this concept in in Spain called the duende. It's from southern Spain where the gypsies are and um, the fact that you know instead of waiting for a muse to come and inspire you. The duende is more like this this little devil, this mischievous creature. And and you have to allow the duende to enter you through your emotional wounds. And through that dance, when the duende comes in and you open yourself up to it and it dances back out in your art or your painting or your film or whatever that expression might be. And that's where the power is. That's where the power is. That's where the power to connect us all is. It's that deep, deep, deep heart space. Obviously in music, you, music and poetry, you've got a lot more leeway when it comes to being abstract, you know, to, and, and uh, a, addressing a lot of these deeply personal issues through, you know, metaphor or other imagery. Um, prose tends to be a lot more literal uh, and, and therefore I suspect in a lot of ways more difficult to deal with really personal issues, right? Because in, in, in a certain way you're, you're dealing with them more head on than you would through perhaps lyrics. Mm. Yes. But there are, I mean, there are so many lyricists that I really admire, you know, um, contemporary Fiona Apple is an amazing lyricist to me. I mean, there, there are amazing lyricists, but for me, um, prose, I mean, I love prose writers like Jean Genet, Toni Morrison, Tenahisi Coates. I mean, these are people that write so deeply from the heart, but, but also the imagination. And, um, and, you know, I talk about this a little bit in, in the book too. It's, you can't be afraid of ghosts. We are surrounded by ghosts, you know, um, people, uh, artists who have died, people we have loved, um, and and they tend to be waiting for us to kind of invite them in because they have a lot to teach and a lot to instruct. 
Um, and I hear that in different, you know, different artists. I see it in paintings. I, I hear it in music. Maybe I'm a little, maybe I've inherited my mother's schizophrenia a little bit, but I do believe that these are the things that make for great art, you know? And we're at a juncture in our culture where I think the gatekeepers, the white gatekeepers of American culture have realized that they can't, they can't continue to lock out the voices of people of color, of working class people, working class men too, because that, that's why we're seeing such a schism, you know, between working class people, white people, black people, the culture, the music, those are the things that bring us together. And like white intellectual academics have had a stranglehold on literary culture for way too long. And that's now finally in the past few years, it's changing. And believe it or not, I think, you know, this whole debacle we've gone through with Trump has brought that necessity and that need to the fore. What I was getting at is a question of, you know, whether there were issues that were, you know, too difficult or too personal to at least initially for you to tackle um, in prose. But, you know, I realize as I'm asking you that, 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 you know, this fir first book was about growing up and, you know, about your motherhood, schizophrenia and all these other things. And, and now you're delving back into a lot of the kind of deeply personal, difficult issues in, in the third book. So it sounds like there was never really a point necessarily where you were, um, shying away from putting deeply personal stories on paper. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel like, um, I feel like the deeply personal stories are ways into why, why, like, for instance, I just wrote a book about LaBelle, Patty LaBelle, Nona Hendricks and Sarah Dash, who did Lady Marmalade, um, because people weren't really aware of their story. But I used a lot of my own experience of that band and what they gave me personally in terms of how their music in part was able to heal certain wounds of mine. Um, so yeah, I, I, the personal, you know, the personal is political. The stories we tell, you know, um, have a way of uh, creating empathy and compassion um, for people that, that, or, or parts of ourselves when we're reading something that, you know, I, I think, I think that's how we heal each other is we give it, we have to give of each other and boy, are we in need of healing right now? Um, you know, so these personal stories, they are the stories of people of color of black writers will open the eyes of people to, you know, and hopefully create more empathy for what they've gone through since time immemorial, you know, because those stories ha haven't really been told enough. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. The personal is political, really. Did you feel like you had to develop uh, empathy for those people in your life early on for your, for your mother, for your family, for the people who, whether directly or indirectly gave you what sounds like a very difficult youth? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do. Uh, you know, you, you have to come to a point of forgiveness. Um, it's so interesting. You know, there's this, it reminds me of this movie called Bad Lieutenant. Did you ever see Bad Lieutenant with Harvey I Keitel? I did, Harvey Keitel. Yeah, the uh, Abel Ferrara. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I thought that, you know, that to me, as dark as that film was, it was instructive because he could not the character could not figure out why the nun would forgive her rapist that was really powerful to me so i don't want to talk about how that ties into my own story but it let's just say that it does <laughs> how far into that book are you probably about half of it done and i have a really good proposal written for it so i'd love to um find the perfect agent who understands what I'm, what I'm after. And, uh, you know, um, I do have two, well, I'm after a great deal. You mean, you mean in terms of publishing, not, not yeah. like artistically, no, well, pragmatically. Play two. I think the agent better understand that. Right. But, um, 
yeah, I, I you know, um, I'm also starting to work possibly I just started, but I might be writing a book about uh, music, the music of Trinidad because I've spent a lot of time in Trinidad and am madly in love with the culture there. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I feel like at this, at this juncture in my life, I'm not, I'm no longer shy of discipline and solitude and, you know, the work, the work ethic, you know, I love to work and um, I know I have a lot of stories to tell. So you've been productive during the pandemic? I have actually, I have. Yeah. I mean, not as productive as I'd love to be because it's, it's, you know, we all feel like we've been pummeled every day by a, like an alcoholic father, you know? Um, but uh, I ha- I've gotten some things done. Yeah. How was the experience of writing the LaBelle book? Obviously it, in, you know, you said you, you, you filter a lot of it through your personal experience, but it's pretty, still pretty dramatically different than the other three books. Oh, for sure. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a, bi- it's part biography, part critical analysis. Um, it's in it, you know, and it, they had such an incredible run. I mean, they started out as a girl group, traditional girl group in the like matching frocks and beehives, you know, um, uh, during the sixties. And um, over the course of, you know, a couple of decades, they turned into these, like the Queens of Afrofuturism, you know, Um, the Nightbirds record and that tour broke so much ground um, they were part of the black arts movement in the, in the early seventies with Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin. And you know, it's such a fascinating story. And I, and I love doing research. I absolutely adore learning. And so I, I could, you know, the biblia. I mean, my, my sources at the end of that book are probably almost longer than the actual <laughs> book because I just love to, to do research, but um, it was a really interesting journey. And I learned a lot by writing that book. And you said you've got a couple of other proposals on the table? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. 